Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this podcast, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We drive all kinds of cool cars, and you can find our content all over the internet, not just on this podcast. For example, you can find my work at autoguide.com, as well as autotrader.ca. That's a new one for me. And Ben, well, you can find his work in some pretty interesting places as well. Ben, do you mind giving me a couple of publications that you've recently published for? Uh, You can find my stuff at Automobile Magazine online, and you can also check out the latest issue of Super Street, or you can go to uh, autotrader.ca, where my name is proudly there alongside Sammy's. Now, we've got some pretty cool cars to talk to you about today, and Ben, you're going to take you're going to start us off with a spin in a new Camaro, is that right? Well, it's a newish Camaro. So, I spent a week with the 2019 Chevrolet Camaro Turbo, which is the entry-level version with the turbo four-cylinder engine, but mine was a, a little bit special because it came with the 1LE track performance package. Now, and- now that's a great combination. That's the new part of this whole thing, right? Well, it's, yeah, I, I drove a prototype of this car. I think we talked about it on the podcast right. last year um, in, in March of 2018. Uh, I went to Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and there was a camoed version of the car that we could drive on the track. And it, anyway, it's in showrooms now. It's not a big surprise. I think it's because it was camoed because that was when they were doing the big push to show the new styling on the Camaro, which we'll get to later. But... Um, the cool thing that Chevy has done and Ford has not with the Mustang, and that's something I want to kind of expand on, is they've taken the 1LE performance package and made it available with every drivetrain they offer at the Camaro. So they started with the SS and the V6, and then they eventually expanded it to the Turbo 4. And the way they did that was it wasn't just kind of a cut and paste thing. Uh, and, and, and I should also point out it's available with the ZL1 as well if you want an even crazier version of the ZL1. But yeah. uh, Chevy does this neat thing, Sammy, where they it's kind of like they take the parts from the next level up vehicle and make them available to the one that's more affordable in the form of this package. So it's not just this uniform package that they just stick onto the car every single time, no matter what. It's no. kind of built to make your your smaller engine vehicle feel a little bit more um, capable. Yeah. So if you have the SS, you get parts from the from the ZL1. If you have the V6, you get parts from the SS. And I think for the Turbo 4, it's very similar to what you get with the V6. Uh, but what about the ZL1? You get parts from like the Corvette? <laughs> no. God hands you down a suspension tuning, a chassis tune, and he's like, and he or she or their it is like, go now, my child, and dominate the racetrack and embarrass the Huracans. Um, so it's. It, it, for the turbo, the, I, I want to point out too, when they say track performance package, that's exactly what they mean. This car is designed for people who are doing road course track days. This is not for the drag strip. It's not for the street. It's for a very specific customer because you get a whole bunch of really cool stuff in addition to the sports suspension, which is you know obviously much more in tune for uh, a resting body roll than what you would get with the standard base car. You get uh, Brembo brakes on the front. The, the cooling system is more capable of handling the heat that you would generate lap after lap. You get a limited slip differential. You get 20-inch rims that are staggered with Goodyear Eagle F1 tires. Maybe the weakest okay. part of the package for the turbo because they're run flats. Okay. Uh, the 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 SS one only gets insane tires. Uh, but anyway, it, it's still it's still good, and it costs it's about forty five hundred bucks to get okay. all this stuff together. Um, this 
package puts the Camaro Turbo at about thirty grand. Okay, so that's not too bad. No, you're getting an out of the box track car for $30,995. Okay, let's let's break down some of these things though first. I want you to talk a little bit more about the turbocharged engine because and, and the platform actually because these two items are, in my opinion, not bad at all and pretty uh, pretty good actually. I don't mind the Alpha platform. We've experienced it before in the ATS and now it's in the Camaro a little bit more focused for performance. And that two liter turbo, which I've also experienced in the in the ATS, is not bad. It's I think it's quite good. Did you drive a manual or automatic version of the car? It was a manual version of the car. I mm-hmm. don't know if there's an automatic version of the one only for the turbo. I don't okay. know if it's available. But I can tell you the Alpha platform in S in SS one only form, perhaps the best affordable track car money can buy. That's really I mean, that's a bold thing to say. Um but- it's it, it's the only thing I think that if if I had I can't remember off the top of my head how much the SS one LE costs. Uh, it's a fair amount more than the turbo, but it's less than a Corvette. And okay. between the SS one LE and the Corvette Grand Sport, those two cars I think uh, are under sixty thousand dollars. Or the Grand Sport might be sixty five now. They are incredible high performance bargains if you want to go to a road course and just dominate and have fun and not really worry about your car being able to handle that kind of environment. So the Alpha platform in my in my mind is is amazing. It's it's far exceeds the Mustang for this specific application. Okay. Di- dialing it down to the Turbo Four. You still have that really great chassis and platform mm-hmm. that comes with, you know, every version of the Camaro. What you don't have is the same power band that you would get with even the V6 version of the Camaro, which is also quite good in one LE trim. Mm-hmm. And I have trouble getting excited about the turbo car from a performance perspective in a straight line or just the feel of the engine itself. Okay, let's I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, um, a lot of, you know, when a lot of the, the PR spin is that, oh, you know, we, we put the four cylinder, so now there's less weight over the, the front wheels and, and, you know, the car will feel a little bit more balanced. I doubt that's anything true or, or it's something you can feel on the road. Am, you know, am I wrong there? You know, Sammy, if someone cut off both your legs, mm-hmm. it would also be lighter. But not yeah. necessarily the best way to become lighter. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, but I think changing the powertrain from a, uh, what, 200 and, uh, or 300 horsepower. Well, how much does the, does the four-cylinder make now that I'm actually, I'm confused. So oh, the no. four-cylinder makes 275 horsepower and 295 th- pound-feet of torque. Okay, so almost 300 pound-feet of torque. But here's what's weird about the motor. Not weird. Here's what's totally normal <laughs> about <laughs> about a street-oriented turbocharged 2-liter. Mm-hmm. All that torque happens at about 3,000 RPM, which is okay. pretty normal, right? For, pretty normal. We're all used to driving. Anyone who's driven a modern turbo 4 is like, the torque's available down low. It's a different experience from a screamer, like an engine where you have to really rev it, like in your in your BRZ, right? It's an FRS, Ben. Jeez. Okay. okay, yeah. In whatever car it is that you own, you have to rev it high to get the power. That's part of the yeah. experience. So it's it's a different kind of thing. The the weirder part though, when you take that formula and you put it on a racetrack, yeah. It can feel a little underwhelming. So, um I'm sorry, which formula? The low, t- the, the, the torque the in the very, middle of the band? The very, very low torque. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I, and I can't wait to hear how you explain it because I have another way of doing well, it. Of talking so, about it. so the uh, peak torque runs out at 5,600 RPM. Yeah, and that's weird, right? Because I think peak horsepower happens a little bit beyond that. Am I and, wrong? And it has a 7,000 RPM red line. 
Yeah, so you've got this you have this area where nothing really is working for you. You've got to change gears, but what do you do, right? Yeah, so where you where you this has an impact in two ways on a racetrack, <laughs> in my opinion. The first is you're less engaged with the car because yeah. you're shifting early almost all the time. To stay in the power band, you don't need to climb up to 7,000 RPM. So mm-hmm. it feels a little less engaging when you're out there and you're really kind of hammering it. The other thing is, though, there's times when you're on a racetrack and you need to stay in a high gear even though you, you're not generating power. So like on my Datsun, I, I have a red line of about 6,500 RPM, but I don't make any power. I don't make any more power past 5,000. So if I keep revving it, I'm not getting more. But I still have to stay in that gear sometimes when I'm approaching a certain corner because it's the only way to keep the car balanced, right? Right. So this car, you're actually, you know, in a similar situation, but it it it, it drops away because in the in my Datsun, I have to rev high to make power, mm-hmm. uh, and like in your BRZ. But in in the the Camaro, you're, you're past peak power at that point. You're kind of in this no man's land, and you didn't really need to be there. So, kind of, why are you there? You could have kept it at like six thousand RPM and had the same effect. And th- that's just, I don't know. It's it kind of takes away a layer of the track experience, in my opinion. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. But I also imagine that this thing can feel pretty good on the road because of that low uh, or that broad power band, uh, torque band, right? Yes and no. It, it, you you never really feel like you're running out of power. There were only a couple times. Well, I kept it in, in third gear a lot of the time around town because mm-hmm. I, I liked that meaty part of the power band. Uh, and uh, but there were a few times where I shifted up to fourth and I kind of ran out of torque. Or I would forget that I didn't have a, a torquey motor under the hood, and I'd be in second gear, and I couldn't get away from a stop, that kind of thing. So right. you, you have to get used to that. But it, it's the same thing around town is there's no real oral engagement with the, with yeah. the engine. You can't really hear the turbo four. You don't really hear the turbo. You hear it a little. But um, it's not screaming at you. And it's just – it's a very competent engine that isn't very passionate. Okay. This is really important. I, I love talking about this because to me – there are some really passionate-sounding uh, turbocharged engines. I mean, you, you've probably heard a bajillion, um, B, what are they called, uh, WRX STIs, which sound really neat, uh, like like very different than other vehicles. And you've got some some people, some tuners, like to have those blow-off valves and other neat noises coming from the thing. Would that help make the uh, Camaro Turbo feel and sound a little bit more engaging? It probably would. Uh, the sound of the WRX with the uneven um, exhaust headers and the the Boxer 4, it's going to be hard to replicate, but it would like a little more noise, a little more stirm and drang and, and, and whatnot. Uh, Sorry, I don't mean to replicate that. I was just saying that there's there are four cylinders with dis- turbocharged fours with distinct sound signatures. Oh, there are, there are, there are tons of them for sure. This car doesn't come across as that having been a priority. It, it, I, I commend GM for making this car available for making for democratizing the one LE. Um, Ford used to do something similar with the Mustang when they had the V6. You could get the the track pack, I think it was called at the time, mm-hmm. and that was really cool. That was a cool car, and then they killed it and replaced it with the EcoBoost, which is not fun to drive whatsoever. I and was, that sounds terrible. It yeah. sounds like it sounds awful. The, the four cylinder Camaro is a much better driving car than the EcoBoosted Mustang, in okay. my opinion. But they both suffer from that same. Once you get high in the rev range, there's just nothing there for you. So it's it's it, there's just no point in being there. And then it, it, it's a bargain track car, but it's a bargain version of what was already a bargain track car. You know what I mean? Right. So you have to decide but, for yourself whether that's worth paying $4,500 for or whether you want to step up to the V6 and get kind of a more engaging experience overall. 
Yeah, I mean, I think for the average buyer, maybe jumping into the V6 makes sense. But for the enthusiast who wants more performance and in, in, in to go to the track and enjoy themselves, I want to hear a little bit more about what this um, 1LE package really delivers and if it delivers what's on the box. I know you say that it's it dominates, and it, it, that was the term you used. But to me, I, I want to make sure that it really feels fun in a way that a non-1LE car would feel. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's completely different from a non-1LE car. Uh, I, on a racetrack, I've driven the SS and the V6 back-to-back with an M4. And okay. it is a far <laughs> better car. <laughs> that... A far better car on a racetrack. Okay, but you know what? We've... Uh... We've uh, dragged on the M4 so many times in the past. Can, do we really need to do it again one more time I'm here? I'm just saying, <laughs> the, the Alpha platform is absolutely excellent. What you might not like so much is when you're not on a racetrack, it is stiff. It is really stiff. You are going to notice it. How does this compare? I mean, now I know that we're, we're talking about different powertrains, but you did drive a performance pack Mustang recently, yes. and now you're driving a 1LE Camaro. These are different. Uh, I mean, take the powertrain out of the equation. What do you think of the way that the two vehicles or the two packages approach grip, responsiveness? Well, I and, thought, uh, I thought it was clear. This this car wipes the floor with the Mustang. There's no You didn't question. explain it with the, with the PP1 or the PP2. It doesn't matter to me. Those cars, they do not approach. I haven't driven the PP2. I can't even believe I'm saying PP again. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Mustang does not approach the Camaro on the track. Interesting. It is The 1LE cars are absolutely as advertised. Uh, the it's unfortunate that they look how they do. Yeah, what happened? They right? are super bland looking. <laughs> but bland? I think they're downright ugly. They're not bland. They're like polarizingly ugly. It's disgusting. Worse than that, though, is everything you've heard about visibility is <laughs> 100,000% true. I had so much trouble driving this car in a city environment because the blind spots are enormous. There were times where I just knew there was a car beside me but couldn't see it. Any, even if I turned my head and looked, I could not see the car because the quarter windows in the back are useless and the pillar is enormous. And backing up, really stressful <laughs> like the car is not pleasant to drive in an environment where there are obstacles <laughs> um and if i recall correctly the interior is nothing uh, exciting too and i've always i've always had that complaint about the mustangs and i i'm disappointed that neither the mustang or the camaro can really just make an interior that's pleasant to be in no, is but that I'm, still I'm the not, case i'm not going to complain too much about the turbo's interior because this is the cheapest camaro so right. i don't ha- i don't have a lot of expectations there Okay. You're buying this uh, car for one reason if you're getting the 1LE. You know, you want a stripped down track model. So you can live with an interior that's pretty plain. And I, I'm not going to rag on it for that. Okay. So around $30,000, it's a tiny bit more expensive than the, um, than let's say, a, a, an MX5 with a, with a soft top and a, uh, an F, a BRZ or Toyota 86. Do you see this thing being a better purchase than those two cars? No, I think that. No, really? either, I think both of those cars are more fun on a track environment. Oh, I'm not wow. necessarily certain whether they're faster. I mean, this car will do zero to sixty in five point one seconds. That's that, wicked fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, all the complaints that I have about the Turbo Four is not because of the power it generates. It's just the character of the engine. It's perfectly competent and fine. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. It's just not to my taste for the situation it was built for, which is road course racing. What about a 370Z? Oh, yeah, it's not even worth talking about on the on the track. Okay. Oh, it's very good. I, I like the 370Z on the track a lot. I think it's Ugh. the 370Z is a, it communicates better than the Camaro, but it's not as good of a platform at this point in its life. Okay. What an interesting uh, like 
a level and price point to um, play with some track cars, right? Yeah. Um, and you've driven some pretty interesting ones, ones that are not rear-wheel drive, like the um, the Veloster N, for example. Yes. Uh, or the the Civic Type R, which are two track-focused vehicles. How do they approach the the track-oriented version of a main of a normalized car? Well, I don't, I don't. I mean, we've talked about them in the past. I'm not a Civic Type R fan. I think it's a very mm-hmm. sanitized, computer-driven experience. The Veloster is raucous and fun, but it's not as quick as the Camaro. No. Um, I'm. I mean, controversially, I wouldn't take any front-wheel drive car to a racetrack. It's yep. not something that I find fun. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there are some that are very competent and they they can do it, but at the end of the day, you're fighting physics. So yeah, it's a compromise. Yeah, so if you're okay with that compromise, that's cool. I like the Veloster N because on a back road, it's it's a ton of fun. Like it wouldn't be my pick to go to a racetrack, even though I'm sure it would be good at it. But uh, I I would just as as an everyday driving around, having a good time, being a hooligan car. It's it's great. The, now, this, this Camaro is absolutely nothing like that. There's like no, there's no personality to this one LE, uh, one LE Turbo. There's 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 nothing. There's no hooligan aspect of it. It's it's kind of like wearing a casual suit, and it's like yeah, hey, we can have a good time, but uh, you probably won't remember after. It's if you want to turn in a good lap time, you'll do that. But the 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 one saving grace I think of the turbo drivetrain in this vehicle is compared to the V6, the tuning options are significantly broader. Okay, so, so the you, aftermarket stuff. Yeah, if you wanted to get more power, I mean, you could easily blow past probably up to 400 horsepower without any problems. That so sounds great. If that's uh, something you, you want to do. Do you think that more affordable than uh, just getting a V6 in the first place? Or do you think this is for somebody who can't afford the V6 well, how first? Much power does the, how much power does the V6 put out? 335, I think. Yeah, you could blow past that, no question. I, um, I want to say that I really think it's cool that Chevrolet has taken this approach to the 1LE package because I drove the fifth generation Camaro. It was one of my very first um, events as an automotive journalist. And it was, a, it was an event that combined the, ZL, or the ZL1 and the 1LE SS. And my experience was that this was a very, very good track car and i was so surprised because everything i've heard about the camaro up to that point was that it was kind it was kind of flimsy and not really made for the track but the one le really changed that um experience yeah they they did their homework on this car and just as you mentioned it borrowed a lot of features from the fifth generation zl1 at the time and i thought that was really impressive it was a smart thing for them to do now for them to do that throughout the range i think that's really cool it's a it's it's just offering far more choice in what is a, a very versatile platform. For sure, for sure. Uh, so that's that's kind of my thoughts on the car. Um, I, I still think, you know, go SS, go V6. But if you if you like turning tuning turbos, you might find this to be uh, a lot of fun. I, I agree I, with you. I think if you're going to get a Camaro, get the SS. And uh, and probably the 1LE, I think, would make for a great, a great combination. But, I mean, keep in mind, on the street, the 1LE will bounce you around. So... If you don't go to the road, if you don't go road racing, you don't need a 1LE. Uh, you'll be perfectly happy with an SS. Did you get any comments or looks from people in this thing? I had a couple of people compliment the car, which is surprising to me because <laughs> of everything we discussed. But it was yeah. a nice deep blue color with the black hood and everything. So it was, you know, it, it, it makes a, I guess it makes an impression. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, I want to, uh, anything else you want to add? No. No, okay. I want to quickly talk about um, trucks again. Uh, I know I talked a bit about the Gladiator, the Jeep Gladiator last week, but I uh, and I probably mentioned this very briefly, but I drove two other uh, competing vehicles 
in that segment, I drove the Ford Ranger as well as a Chevy Colorado. And I had a couple of thoughts uh, on those as well. First of all, let's talk about the Ford Ranger. You've driven the Ford Ranger, isn't that right? Yes. This is a very interesting car because I wasn't that impressed with it. And I thought I would be. I mean, for a, a brand new truck, I'm, I was wondering when and where it existed. Like well, when I, and where it was supposed to be doing what it does. If only it were a brand new <laughs> I mean, we've had this conversation. It isn't re-engineered from the international model. It seems almost built like straight up that old one brought here, built here. Here you go. And uh, I wasn't super impressed. There is one or two aspects that I really do like about the Ranger. That's the powertrain. I think the EcoBoost four-cylinder is very good. It's surprisingly refined for um, the, the segment. That's, I think, saying more about the segment than it is about the EcoBoost. Um, the 10-speed automatic works pretty good. And I got really good fuel economy in this truck, which isn't expected. And it should be expected because you buy a small truck because it should be more efficient. It should be everything it can be in a smaller package. Isn't that right? That makes sense to me, right? Uh, well, here's the thing. It's it's not – this car is – is the, 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 the midsize truck segment right now is not oriented – at providing a smaller version of the full-size truck. It's 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 kind of a lifestyle vehicle. And I kind of hate that. I really do not think that's fair. Fair to who? <laughs> I mean, I think these trucks can be so much more capable and more affordable than the, the half-ton trucks. I think they can. For example, the Ranger has pretty good um, high ends in terms of towing and, and uh, payload. It has – it can it – can, tow 7500 pounds and it has 1860 for the for the bed which is not bad that's yeah. perfectly usable but if you have those figures you're going to have the fuel mileage that goes with those figures okay because that but when you're not gonna... using those but when you're not do, using the ranger for towing or or hauling you're going to be experiencing pretty good fuel economy well i thought you were complaining about the fuel economy no no i like the fuel economy okay i'm sorry i I hope i'm i didn't realize that uh i i didn't articulate that well i thought i had very good fuel economy for the for the ecoboost four cylinder what i also was impressed with is that it came with a lot of um features things like uh adaptive cruise control lane keeping blind spot monitoring um it had a one of those fancy terrain management systems that allow you to change you know what surface you're driving on and it's supposed to make you feel a little bit more confident on that so those are the are the positives of this vehicle everything else about this about this truck is really not worth is not impressive at all i don't like the interior styling i don't like the exterior styling um i i i just didn't think it drove particularly well and it can get kind of expensive the model i had was over $50,000 Canadian. No, definitely. It's the interior of that vehicle. Is It feels like it's from five or six years ago. We've talked about that on the podcast earlier this year when I drove the vehicle. It's just, it's it's clear where Ford stopped investing in the transition from the global market to the North American market. And that's annoying. I kept thinking when I was driving it, where is the expertise of from Ford and the F-150 in this Ranger? It's nowhere to be found, and I think that's a huge Missed opportunity for them. They should be able to take the essence of the F-150 because the F-150 now comes in 150 different configurations. Like, it's insane. You should be able to take what is really key about that thing, put it into a smaller package, and sell it to somebody very easily. And they didn't. But there's a reason why they don't do that. Because they make a buttload of cash on the F-150. Yeah, and they have to protect it. 
Because uh, the I margins, the margins on the F one fifty are so high, you wouldn't want to create a better product that's cheaper. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I'm not saying better product, but it should be better for some people. I don't like how big the F one fifty is. Like, I truly don't. I hate having to think about um, parking garage uh, height limitations, or or just as I mentioned before, fuel economy. Even with all of the powertrains that the F one fifty offers, but the Ranger so, is also pretty big compared to other small trucks. In the yeah, past, in the past, and, and I think you, if uh, it, the, sorry, I'm struggling now. Wow, uh, it's only offered in one wheelbase, which I think is kind of interesting. So if you get the crew cab or the um, the other model, which is like the short ca- the short cab, I'll call it the crew cab or the super cab. That's what they call it. One is a five passenger, and one is a four passenger model. Um, you still get the same wheelbase. You're not getting a bigger vehicle. It's significantly smaller than the Ranger, for example. Um, uh, not the Ranger, sorry. I just said the Ranger. Uh, it's significantly smaller than the, what did I drive last week? The Gladiator, for example. And it's smaller than the Tacoma. So it can be considered quite you know, small. But then if you talk about things like the Frontier or the, um, I can't believe I even mentioned the Frontier, or the, what's the other one called? The Ridgeline. Two very forgettable products, clearly. That's where the Ranger can look a little big. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's like we had with Porsche and the Boxster for a it long is. time. It is. It really is. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up for a long time. We wondered when is the Boxster gonna have its its moment because it's totally capable of being as good as a 911. And then they gave it the Cayman GT4. And then they made the 911 ninety thousand dollars. Yeah, like ninety nine thousand dollars. <laughs> I think that's exactly what they did, and I can't see them doing something. Not I'm not gonna say that the F one fifty is going to become a one hundred thousand dollar truck, but to take it from its like thirty thousand dollar price point and move it up to to fifty for a starting, they're not going to do that. That's insane, right? Well, I mean, how many thirty thousand dollar F one fifties have you ever seen? I, <laughs> outside work of a, trucks. I outside mean, of yeah. a contractor's lot, you're not going to find those vehicles. Absolutely, exactly. Um, now, although we are kind of um, uh, of putting down this segment, this mid sized segment that really straddles this this really sad moment before the half ton trucks, I did. Thoroughly enjoy my experience in the Chevy Colorado ZR2. I'm not. I'm not putting down the segment. I don't think there's anything wrong with the segment. I think no, that, I do. I think, I think a think... lifestyle truck is a valid choice if people want that truck and they don't want like some of these trucks fit in garages, as you pointed out. So if you yeah. want like a truck, a pickup that you don't have to leave in the driveway, then this is kind of your only bet at this point. Right. So then let's talk about lifestyle trucks. The ZR2 fills that that niche. So well, it does only that one thing and it does it so very well. And that one thing is it's like off-road ready from the get-go. And I feel I felt so much more comfortable and confident driving it uh, in comparison to the Gladiator as well. And honestly, this thing looks great. It looks like a trophy truck for the road. It has a fantastic uh, 3.6 liter V6 engine. Um, I was, I'm, I'm iffy on the transmission. It was, it was hit and miss sometimes. Uh, and I do think... Um, the interior is a little bit uh, dated and, and, you know, just plastic fantastic. But I love the way this thing drove. It had the best suspension I have ever experienced in a truck that I can think of. I, I think maybe the only other better suspension system that I've driven is uh, the air suspension in the Ram 1500. I also want to point out that when you say dated, this truck's been on the market a lot longer than the Ranger. The Ranger just came out and it's dated. Yeah. The yeah. Colorado has been on the market for years. So that's why it's feeling a little bit behind the times. I was so impressed with this suspension. Now, it uses this thing called DSSV dampers. You've talked about this before on the podcast. Yeah, I think we talked about it a bit last week, too. 
Basically, it replaces these uh, these these piston style. Um, sorry, I, I had this written down, and now I got too super excited, and I, I lost my notes. This is what happens when I podcast sometimes. Um, sorry, it replaces the piston and shims in like normal dampers with these spool valves, and now as a result, the, the truck feels really good on both um, asphalt and off-road situation yeah as compared as compared to when you drive like say a a raptor on the road and it feels like you're gonna die (laughs) (laughs) it feels like a marshmallow it's terrible i am so happy with what this truck like it was so good ben i really can't get over how good it was to drive and i'm super I, i i'm still buzzing from the experience that was over a week ago um if it's expensive i mean it's 50 something thousand thousand dollars in in canada um, it's, it's quite tall. It, it negates some of the, the, it has a spare tire mount in the bed that you have to remove in order to use your bed properly. Um, and it's towing and hauling is, is compromised as a result of all of the extra hardware. But you can, you can get a going. regular version of the Colorado that's still pretty good. That doesn't have all the off-road stuff too. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see that being uh, a bad choice, but to me, I just fell in love with this truck. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. At least if you're not going to offer these, like, um, like a true trucking experience, offer something that's so much, so enjoyable. Um, and that's, what's going to sell the truck. You know, it has a killer. I think it's a true trucking experience. I mean, I don't see anything that's not true about it. I think it's built for, for it's, it's specialty built to be, an off-road vehicle. I mean, as I mentioned before, if you really wanted to tow and haul, you would get a, a half ton. You'd get a 1500 or an F-150, um, unless size is the only thing that you're worried about. And then that's where the ZR2 kind of falls apart because it's a bit taller and then size is no longer the important aspect of that vehicle. Do you see what I'm... I, maybe I'm not articulating it properly. I don't know. I think lots of people tow with smaller vehicles. I think people yeah. tow... I think people tow with whatever they own, personally. That's true. So I don't see a reason why you couldn't tow with one of these trucks. I think half-ton trucks are overkill for most people's towing needs. And uh, I think once you start to get to like the 10,000-pound area where you're at the border of what's possible with a a half-ton truck, you should just step up to a a three-quarter ton. Right. And and like that's when you need to get into heavy duty territory. So if you're below that, and you know, like you want to tow five thousand pounds, most people tow thirty five hundred pounds. That's the average trailer weight. In the I mean, and a crossover can handle that in, in many situations. Yeah, it can as long as there's no one riding with you. I mean, people <laughs> start to forget about gross vehicle weight restrictions and that kind of thing, and they overload. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I see these trucks as perfectly valid answers to towing and hauling. Hauling less because the beds are a lot a lot shorter, which is something you really notice in the Ranger. Yeah, it's a tiny bed. Yeah, uh, it's actually surprisingly bigger than the uh, Colorado's short bed, okay. which I thought was interesting. But the Colorado has a long bed option as well. It does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was my experience with the small trucks. It, I, I, as you know, I didn't, I don't have a ton of trucking experience, and I love every. Um, I, I love increasing that knowledge in increments. I think these small trucks, I was looking forward to falling in love with them, and I didn't, at least when it comes to the Gladiator and Ranger. I really did fall in love with the the Colorado, but to me, it's completely different than, it's a different experience than the other two trucks because it's such an off-road focused and enthusiast focused vehicle than the other two. So um, do you have anything else you want to say about these trucks, wrapping it up? 
No, I, I mean, and the other thing is I've looked at uh, the, the Ridgeline, and the Ridgeline is a very normal interior. Have you ever been in, in a Ridgeline? It's so weird to say that have. Honda has this minivan-derived pickup truck, but it's actually not so bad uh, in terms of what some regular buyers might be interested in. Uh, speaking of minivans, that kind of segues yes. us into the next thing I wanted to talk about. We got an email uh, a couple of weeks ago from Conrad, one of our listeners, mm-hmm. and he wanted us to talk about something fairly specific, but honestly something that I think about a fair bit. And that's the idea that maybe SUVs are not necessarily the answer for people looking for a family vehicle. So specifically... Um, is Conrad drives daily drives a Mustang, a 2016 Mustang, and his wife mm-hmm. has a Focus. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Look, we need to get a bigger car because we have three kids on the way, and those cars aren't going to cut it on a on a regular basis." So they're looking to move the Focus and pick up a minivan. And mm-hmm. what they've noticed is every time they say this to anyone in their lives, they're like, "Why would you get a minivan? Minivans are terrible. What are you doing? And why don't you get an SUV?" And his question is. In general, why would we get an SUV? <laughs> like right. minivans, I mean, aside from the stereotypes, minivan, he said, Conrad says, a minivan is better for families in every way he can think of. Mm-hmm. Now, Sammy, do you agree with that, with that, that statement? Uh, 100%. I think that for families, a minivan does the job and does it so well and for less money. It's an important decision that you have to make. Do you buy a truck? or a vehicle for your needs or for everyone else to look at you in. And yeah. a minivan does the job so well. It's got so much space. And you know what? Even if you're not hauling kids around in it, they're extremely practical. I have, uh, no shame, I have moved out of like houses and in, in apartments with using just a minivan, and it does the job better than any truck I could have. It, it totally imagine. does. And, and you know, you, you, you touched on space, which is where minivans blow everything else out of the water. I think routinely a minivan will give you something like 150 cubic feet of volume behind the first two seats. You can't find that in any SUV right now, I don't think. Uh, not even the full-size three rows, which are the, the, the body-on-frame trucks, aren't going to give you that. But nope. then you start to look at things like access. You have two sliding doors on either side, which makes mm-hmm. it really easy to get kids in and out, really easy to get car seats in and out. Mm-hmm. You can remove the seats in the middle if you want and have this big open area. You can remove the seat in the back and have a large cargo area. You can remote control open those doors. Good luck doing that on your SUV unless you're you know driving a Model X, in which case you're probably not listening to this podcast um, <laughs> because we've said some mean things about the model x in the past uh you you it's just such a user-friendly vehicle and they're more comfortable in most cases to drive than an suv they're not great to drive they drive like a van like a box but they they're not up off the ground which means they're Mm -hmm. not they don't feel particularly tippy yep and they're easy to get in and out of as a result of that for for Mm -hmm. the front seats where you don't have the sliding doors and one more thing uh people are some people might be listening and they're like, oh, but what about all-wheel drive? I live in an area where there's snow, ice, a lot mm-hmm. of rain. Whatever it is, I need the extra traction. Well, Conrad's looking at a 2019 Sienna from Toyota. Mm-hmm. And that's a, he's specifically looking at an all-wheel drive model. And they're the only company that makes all-wheel drive minivans right now. Um, so he's got that base covered. So- uh, I think that's the weirdest part about these minivans is that they don't offer them with the same powertrains that you can get some – um, SUVs in, whether it's a bigger or smaller engine, um, it's a, that ride height that might be important or all-wheel drive or, you know, those other kinds of all-wheel drive, be it a slip and grip or who knows what. You know, it might be, it might be packaging, like, uh, to keep the load floor low in the back. 
Mm-hmm. But if Toyota can do it, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And the, and the other thing is, there's been so much attention paid by the automakers to their SUV and crossover offerings over their minivans that some of their minivans can feel a little bit dated when it comes to the interior technology. Then again, it's much easier to get a, a entertainment system in a minivan than a than a crossover. If in my experience, those are usually reserved for like the highest trim level uh, crossovers are super expensive. And yeah. I think minivans can probably be a little bit more affordable with those fully trimmed models. Well, I, actually, I was, I, I'm going to contradict you there because I think the one area where minivans start to fall apart from a value perspective is the expense associated with high-end models. You okay. can spend a lot on a Sienna and an Odyssey. They can get very expensive. And I think that is partially by design where the companies are trying to move people over into the SUVs by saying, you know, like you're paying 50 grand or 40 grand or whatever it is for this Toyota SUV, sorry, this, this Sienna, but for the same amount of money, you could be driving that SUV over there with this, yeah. that, and the other features. So like, um, it's, it could be a bit of bait and switch going on in the showrooms, but anyway, all of this to say, Conrad, minivans are a good buy. I grew up, uh, in a minivan. I, my mm-hmm. family had wagons, but then we had a minivan that we had a Pontiac transport. That's the vehicle I learned to drive on. <laughs> and it was teal green. Uh, with great pink graphics on the side, and I thought I was the coolest person in the world driving that. Thing no, around. you didn't. Yes, I did because I was young and didn't understand the world, Sammy. But that's but isn't that what it comes down to with these minivans? People just might not think you're cool. And okay, we get it when you're driving your minivan, sure. But Conrad's got a Mustang, uh, and, and his wife has a, a Focus. Those are two very good, fun to drive vehicles as well that you can feel pretty cool driving. Yes. And yeah, if you're driving your kids around, yeah, the Sienna makes a ton of sense or any minivan. Unnamed Automotive Podcast, seal of approval on minivan purchase. And Sammy, there's one more thing I want to talk about before yep. we wrapped up today. So on occasion, uh, we get books into to review, check out, see if they're worth talking about with our listeners. Uh, they're always obviously focused on automotive, but we had kind of a special book that came in uh, this summer. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Complete Book of Porsche 911. And it's by uh, Motor Books, written by a man called Randy Leffingwell. Now... Mm-hmm. This is a big coffee table book. It's about 50 bucks. And I can tell you, sometimes I look at these books and, you know, you're in like a a waiting room somewhere or you're in like a a demo home unit or something and they have these books scattered around to give you the impression of the lifestyle that you'll live if you live there. Mm -hmm. Or like a hotel room kind of book. And I look at them and I'm like, eh, it's just going to be a lot of pictures and maybe a few captions and it's not really going to teach me anything. So I opened this book up, and I was pleasantly surprised. This book takes a look at every single model of 911 from the beginning until now. And it doesn't just look at the mainstream stuff, like, oh, here's the 996, here's the 993, here's the here's the 964. Yeah. It starts with the 901, oh. the, the prototype. And it starts with prototype prototypes of that car. <laughs> and then for each model year... You get all of the you get the mainstream version of the, of the Porsche 911, but you also get all of the special models that were built for that generation. So the rally car versions of of the vehicle, like the cool. Safari style ones, you yeah. get the um, you get the 959. There's a section of that that's in here, and then oh, it talks yeah, about yeah, what a wicked car. So then it talks about how the 959 influenced the next generation of Porsches, and it, mm-hmm. it gets into the nitty gritty. Like there's a whole section on the 964 where they're talking about well, it got kind of heavy and it didn't have have great power and the engineers like it sold well but the engineers were really upset with the car and they weren't happy with how it turned out and then that influenced the 993 that came after but they were like look we kind of have to have a do-over on this car mm-hmm. and make it how we want to and and 
interesting discussions about Porsche in racing and how they adopted adapted sorry the 911 platform to various racing series. So I learned a lot. Just like you could just flip through this book. Whatever page you're on, you're probably going to find a 911 you weren't necessarily familiar with. And then you're going to be inundated with all the information about that car presented in kind of a storytelling kind of way. That's really neat. And I like the idea that you just said about um, the racing applications of a 911. Some people might just think that a 911 race car is just a 911 with, without an interior. But, you know, some of them have – they've had to move the engines forward or backwards to make them – um, perform a little bit better and you you get that opportunity in when you race it and I think that's really something interesting to learn about um, the different motorsport applications of the 911 as yeah. you mentioned even rally racing in some cases well there's a really neat section about the 935 Moby Dick race car that they made mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> that's a car that took the 911's body and the the guy who was in charge of Porsche's racing program at that time was really really good at, at reading rule books um, his name was Norbert Singer, and he noticed that they didn't say anything in the book about how wide the fenders could be. Like, mm-hmm. you had to keep the same roof line, and you had to keep the factory doors, but there was nothing about the fenders. So he jacked out the fenders to this huge width to fit massive tires under the car, and then he added these inserts over the doors. He cut the door sills out completely, so the car was lower, but then he added these inserts over the doors, so the factory doors were technically still there. But they were behind this additional arrow, and yep. he could make the tail of the car as long as he wanted. That wasn't in the book either. So he took it to – there was a way where – there were two ways to get your car legalized for that racing series. One was you just ran it, and if people complained, they would inspect it, <laughs> and there would be like a judgment. But you could go before the series started and say, here's the car. Is it legal? And a lot of people don't like doing that because, you know, maybe you can get away with something a whole season that no one notices. But if you put it in their face right away, there's a chance that they're going to be like, no, you can't run this. So he showed up with the the Moby Dick car and the guy looked at it immediately um, was this guy. He was a Porsche racer and a friend of his named Paul Frère. And Frère looked at it and was like, this is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and and Singer was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He's like, well, you, you have to have production shape of the door. And Singer was like, no problem. And he pulled this quick release lever <laughs> and like that whole door section he had on the outside just came off the car. And he's like, the, the factory doors are right there. And he's, and he's like, uh, okay, I guess that's legal, but you have to keep those funky doors off. You have to like... Keep it looking mm-hmm. factory. So he's like, okay, I'm okay with that as long as you sign all of the paperwork immediately <laughs> saying that this car is legal. And they ar- argued about it for a while, and then finally he got his signature. And then the car wasn't as as great as um, – it, it didn't dominate, I don't think, in the way they wanted it to in the initial season. It, it was kind of – it shone a little bit later. But it was a very, very fast car, like 250 miles an hour on the Mulsanne Strait, which is really insane when you think about it. Uh, some of the Porsche drivers who, who were in that car, it was the fastest they'd ever been on a racetrack. That's awesome. So anyway, all that to say, that's just one kind of vignette out of this book, which is quite large and impressive looking and filled with cool photos of the race cars and all the other cars that maybe you've never seen before. So if you're a Porsche fan... This is more than just a coffee table book. This is something that I think um, you would enjoy if you're a casual fan, but also enjoy if you're someone who's kind of deeply steeped in the history of the mark. That's very, very cool. And I actually really, I actually really love finding new uh, automotive-themed books to, to cover, to read. Um, I, I, I love to read, especially when we're traveling. 
and uh, something, although this is not exactly that kind of content um, that I'm looking forward to because it seems like more of a, a coffee co- coffee table book. It is heavy, Sammy. I don't know if it would fit in your bag. Oh, but I'm always looking forward to, to more book recommendations that allow me to not just hear the regular story that everyone else shares, but uh, something you know, new and unique, the, the behind the, the behind the scenes stuff. So uh, speaking of behind the scenes, Sammy, what are we going to be talking about next week? Next week, I've got a Mustang, if you would believe it or not. Um, it's the Bullet, actually, which is a special version of the, of the V8 Mustang. Okay. And uh, next week, I will be talking about the BMW M340i, the uh, 2020 model, which is the first turbocharged V6 version of the current generation car. Very cool. I'm looking forward to that. Now, if you're looking forward to that as well, dear listener, you can come to our website. That's unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And when you're over there, you can subscribe to our podcast. You can see all of our uh, previous episodes, as well as some photos and links to the stories that we've written about them. You can also get in touch with us very, very easily. There's a form there. Um, You just click on that. You fill out all the information and it gets sent right, boom, into our inboxes. And if you want to get in touch with us in other ways, you can find us on social media. We have abandoned Facebook, but you can still find us on Twitter, where Sammy likes to hang out. His handle is at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. You can find me on Instagram, where people are a little bit nicer and the pictures are a little bit brighter. And (laughs) my handle there is at HuntingBenjamin. Or you can email me the old-fashioned way, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. So until next week, thank you very much for listening, and we hope that you tune in. Thank you, and bye.